As we look in God's Word again during this pandemic COVID-19 experience we're all in, God's heart led, uh, God's led my heart to a uh, particular section of Scripture that deals with stress and a lot of it. Um, as I was thinking about uh, all the stress that I'm feeling, that you're feeling during this time, what does God's Word say to that? And God reminded me of really the last third, almost the last half, really, of the book of 1 Samuel. If I were teaching you the whole book of 1 Samuel, chapters 1 through 7 deals with the theme of despair, the church in despair. Chapters 8 through 14 is a strong section on disobedience versus obedience. And then what I want to deal with a little bit starts in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, and that's distress from chapter 15 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 31. God is showing us example after example of His people under great stress. Now, what is distress? It's, it's, it's being under stress. It's, it's a pressure. It's an emotional pain that even leads to uh, exhaustion. Uh, do you ever face it? Do I ever face it? Every day. Yes, we all face distress. Life is difficult. Marriage is difficult and stressful. Raising children is stressful. Uh, finance, especially during times like this, is often stressful. And walking around with the fear of maybe catching an infectious disease or even worse, giving it to someone else is stressful. We all face stress every day. That's the bad news. Good news, God can help. And God's help for us is beyond take two Tylenol and get some rest. God's help for us is beyond go sign up for a yoga class. It's beyond going to the gym. It's beyond exercise. It's beyond taking a walk. It's beyond a good meal and a good glass of wine. God's help is deliverance from our distress. And I want you to see it as we look at three stories in 1 Samuel. But before we get there, let me just give you the conclusion uh, of this. If you will look in your Bibles at 2 Samuel chapter 4, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9, um, what we're reading here is just a testimony from King David about God's deliverance from his distress. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9, David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, sons of Remnon, the Berathite, and he said to them, As the Lord lives, catch this phrase, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. What a testimony. Unbelievable. He says, it's, it's an oath. God, literally, God has redeemed my life. He says, let me testify. I have a God who has redeemed my life from all distress. Now, what distress is he talking about? He's talking about the stress he was under beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 15 all the way up until the end of that book and into the next, into 2 Samuel. God has delivered me from all my distress. That's huge. That's amazing. That's so significant to serve a God who can deliver us from all our distress. That's a word of hope. And I want you to catch it. I want you to live it. I want you, like me, I want to be able to give the same kind of testimony that David was able to give that I have lived a life, yes, that's been difficult and stressful at times, but I have also lived with a God who constantly delivers me from all my distress. So whatever the stress is to, that you're under right now, let's give it to God and watch God deliver us from that distress. Um, the distress in chapter 15 to 31 in First Samuel 
is, is kind of simple and easy to understand. What we begin to see in chapter 15 is God anoints David to be the next king of Israel. Saul is the current king of Israel. We also see God rejects Saul. So Saul's under distress because God's rejecting him. David's under distress because he's being anointed to be the king of a nation. That's a pretty big job as a young man. And then everyone's under distress because you're having a king, a man anointed to be a king while another man's still king. Who do you serve? Who do you follow? How do you get this one, Saul, off the throne and David on the throne? So all of Israel's torn between two potential leaders uh, and what God is doing. Um, We are a lot like David, I think, sometimes. God's given us promises, but we're waiting for them to be fulfilled. It's like waiting for your ship to come in. David was anointed to be king, but he had to wait, chapters 15, all the way to the end of the book, before he actually became king. That was a stressful time, being told he would be king, and yet Saul's constantly trying to kill him for wanting to be king. Saul wanting to keep the throne. A lot of stress. Um, Are you waiting for something to happen? Are you waiting for the next thing to occur in your life? Are you waiting for your ship to come in? That's stressful. Life would be better. This would be better if just the next thing happened. Well, obviously, we're all waiting through COVID-19 pandemic for one more story of hope, one more thing to happen that's going to make our life better. Uh, God's pleasure is to deliver us from distress when our hearts are fully, completely, 100% his. And he gives us three stories, 1 Samuel 15, 16, and 17, that really teach that one point over and over and over again. God is pleased to deliver from distress those whose heart is completely His. Let's look at the first story. The first story is uh, about King um, Saul uh, disobeying really for one of the last times before God uh, rejects him, uh, disobeying and being rejected as the king over Israel. Um, Saul's view was that, you know, he was king. He just needed to look out for himself. He needed to exalt himself. He needed to honor himself. This chapter, chapter 15, I call it the chapter where what's more important, honoring yourself or a heart for God? Well, let me read some of it to you. 1 Samuel 15, the first three verses. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he himself uh, set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and don't spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So the command here is fairly simple. God said, when I was bringing my people out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt, excuse me, into the promised land, I had to pass through the Amalekite territory, and the king of Amalek, he wouldn't let us do that. He was harsh. He was mean. Uh, There was no kindness. He says, it's time for payback. So, Saul, I want you to go back to Amalek, and I want you to literally wipe them all out. Don't leave anyone, any being uh, alive. Kill the king, the queen. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel, donkey, kill it all. It's a total destruction of the Amalekites. That was the command uh, God had given Saul. Skip down to verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from 
uh, Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlands and the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless that that they utterly destroyed. So you heard the command. He was supposed to utterly destroy things. They understood they were supposed to completely wipe everything out, but they weren't willing to do so. So disobedience. Uh, Verse 12. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told to Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. So Samuel's going to meet Saul on his way. He hears that Saul is exalting himself. He's, He's feeling so good about this wipeout of the Amalekites, uh, this victory in warfare that he thinks he should build a monument to himself. So that makes him feel good. He builds a statue of Saul. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? Saul feels like he's done everything right. He should be exalted, builds his own monument, um, he has carried out the command of the Lord. Um, Samuel immediately responds, but Samuel said, verse 14, then, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? In other words, you walk into the camp, you see corral after a corral of oxen and sheep and these fatlands that they have They have spared from the Amalekite uh, nation. So Samuel says, if you kept God's command, you were to utterly destroy all of these animals. If if you think you completely obeyed God, then why am I hearing all of these animal sounds? These were creatures God asked you to destroy, and it hadn't happened. Verse 15 Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep. Let's point the finger. The people spared them. The best of the sheep, of course, Saul admits he approved. They spared the best of the sheep and oxen. And here's the the clincher. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. So, yeah. We knew we were supposed to utterly destroy. But then when we got in there, we saw all these beautiful creatures that we could sacrifice to God. It could be a religious thing, a worship service for us. God would be pleased with us bringing to Him the spoil and uh, having a religious service. Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said, speak. Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. See, now he's become big in his own eyes. Took him back to when he was little in his own eyes. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then... Did you not obey the voice of the Lord? But you rushed upon the spoil, and you did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites." But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction. That's an admission. They should have been destroyed. But they brought them back to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Well, another admission here by Saul. Not only did he bring these sheep and oxen and these animals back that should have been destroyed, but he also brought the king back. 
God specifically said, I want you to kill Agag, the king. So Saul is admitting that he did not fully keep God's commands. Verse 22 and 23, Samuel responds. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He says, Behold, stop, hear this, don't miss it. To obey. You obeying the voice of the Lord is far better than offering these animals as a sacrifice. To heed, to do what God says, is better than the fat of rams, than offering these things in sacrifice. Verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. What a statement. Uh, God said through Samuel to Saul, Saul, what I was looking for is your heart completely, fully hearing my word and keeping my word, keeping my commands. To obey is far better. You know, if you don't obey, if, you, if it's partial obedience, you know, well, I did obey. No, that no, was partial obedience. Partial obedience is choosing to do your own thing. You take parts of the commands, and those are the parts you choose to keep, and you don't keep other parts. That's you being in charge. If you're in charge and someone else has given your command, you're rebelling against who's really in charge, God. It's, it's, it's a sin of rebellion. He says, you've rejected God, so God's now going to reject you because of your willful disobedience for God's command. Uh, Saul was one who wanted to uh, exalt himself. He was told he was rejected in verse 23. Again, verse 26, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Saul thought everything was good, he was successful in battle. He builds a monument for, to himself. He's exalted himself. He now has all of this wealth from this nation. He's destroyed and robbed. And he's thinking how he's going to use some of it to have religious services and worship God. Thought he had done the best that he could do, and yet it was not obedience. It was not from a heart that was seeking to serve God fully and completely. Um, it, it reminded me of um, the rich man. Um, let's look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Here's the story of uh, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And I, I just bring you this parallel because none of us have been commanded like Saul to go to another nation and utterly wipe them out. We don't have those kind of commands, but we do have the lifestyle at times of the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, verse 16, Some, uh, someone came to him and said, teacher, so this is the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus, he says, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, There's, uh, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. See, here's the just very simple. God says, just keep the commandments. Then he said to him, well, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the young man said to Jesus, all these things I have kept. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, well, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But the young man heard this statement, and he went away grieving, for he owned much property. Here we see a, a man who's concerned about his wealth more than he's concerned about completely obeying God. 
having a heart that is completely his. Another thing we see here is uh, this idea that wealth is sometimes a, a, a lens into our heart, a picture of what our hearts truly value. Um, Jesus said it succinctly in Matthew 6, verse 21. Uh, there he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, what you put money in, what you value, will give us an, an indication, an evaluation of where your passions lie, where your heart is. Um, I'm not asking you to give anything. There's no particular fund. There's nothing that I'm uh, asking for. I just want you to evaluate. Uh, evaluate your heart. Jesus says we can do that by thinking about where our money is, what we value. Uh, what are you writing checks to? What are you texting money to? Uh, God says if you look at where you're spending your money, you can look, you, you have an indication of what you like, what you like to do. Saul, he wanted to spend all of this money he got from the Amalekites, all of these animals. He wanted to spend some of it on building a monument to himself, his own personal pleasure, his own honor, his own exaltation. We, a lot of times, want to spend our paycheck on things that just build us up, as opposed to using the paycheck for ways to honor God, to completely obey God. So you have the command from God, just like the rich young ruler. God gave him commands. He says, I can keep the commands. I've, I've been doing that a long time. Gives him another command. Oh, I don't really want to keep that command. Why? Because I value something more. I value my money more than I really value God. And 100% sold out obedience. I, I, I value my wealthy status a lot of times we value our clothes, our cars, our houses, our wealth. I mean, it makes us look good. If God tells us, you just utterly destroy that. Wipe that out and just fully and completely obey me. We say, ah, oh, that's, I'm not sure I want to do that. Let's make it even simpler. God gives us a simple command to bring to him our tithes and offerings. Now, a tithe is uh, in Scripture, known as 10% of what God gives to you, and it's your first fruits. You give it back to God. So whatever your paycheck, whatever God's blessed you with, God says give 10% back and do that first. Now, a lot of times we say, um, uh, yeah, I understand I need to give a tithe. I need to give offerings above and beyond a tithe, but this whole idea of it being first, I don't want to do that. I want to give to God out of the spoil, out of the leftovers. So I want to give to myself first. I want to build my, my monument first. I, want to, I don't know if I'll have enough if I give to God first. I, have to, I got bills to pay. I got to pay for the house. I got to pay for the clothes. I got to pay for the car. I got to pay for Christian education. These are sacrifices I'm giving to God. If I have money left over, then I'll give 10%. If I have money left over, then I, I may even give to some other offerings. I will sacrifice it to God. Sounds a lot like Saul, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like the rich young ruler. God says, I kind of know where your heart is by what you spend your money on and how you spend it. If you don't give it to God first, you're giving it to yourself first. You're giving it to something else first. And so your heart's not completely and fully God's first. Um, what does Samuel say to Saul? To obey is far better than this concocted idea that you're sacrificing for God. No, complete obedience to give to God first His honor before you start, start honoring yourself, that's a heart for God. You know, when we pray under stress, don't we ask God, Lord, just, just lift me up. 
Get me out of this mess. Raise me up. Keep me from embarrassment. Keep me from shame. All of those things are self-directed. How many times in our stress do we pray, God, honor your name. God, no matter what happens to me, you be praised. You be honored. Let me be fully obedient to you in this time of stress. It's when we're there at that place asking for God's honor, God's praise, full obedience to God that we find God deliver us from our distress, which is why it's crucial to understand these principles. Well, that's chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Let's move to chapter 16. Here we have um, a story of Samuel having rejected Saul, now going to anoint David as the next king of Israel. Chapter 16, let me read uh, the first five verses. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, how, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designated to you. So Samuel goes, declares he's just going to have a religious service. He invites Jesse. Jesse's got a number of sons, and from, one of the, from those sons, one will be selected. He doesn't tell Samuel ahead of time which one uh, that will be. You get down to verse 6. When they entered, he looked and Eliab, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. This is the one I need to anoint as king. And the Lord says to Samuel, You're going to see a number of sons here. Um, but catch this phrase do not look at his, at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Because I've rejected him, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So without going through the rest of the sons, Samuel's thinking, is this the one, this the one, is this the one? And God says, you're, you're looking at all of this wrong. You keep looking at the outward appearance. Just as Saul was looking at honoring himself, you're looking at the one who's the most handsome the most attractive in appearance, an outward uh, image of a king. And what you should be looking at is what's in his heart. You should be evaluating his heart. I'm rejecting Saul because his heart was the problem. So don't replace Saul with someone who still has a heart problem. You should be looking for someone whose heart is completely his. Um, so verse uh, 12 so he sent and he brought him. So they, David wasn't even there, the next king. So they had to go send for him. They bring him. Now, David shows up. He was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Nothing wrong with a good outward appearance. David's got it too. But by this time, Samuel is not looking at the outward appearance, even though it's, it's beautiful, it's attractive. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him for this is the man. This is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose, and he went, went to, to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and the evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So we have a contrast. Uh, God's blessing and Spirit leaves Saul it comes in to David. David is being anointed. God's pleasure is going with David. And not because he was ruddy, beautiful eyes, and a handsome appearance, but because of his heart for God. It had already been declared that David had this heart for God. Look back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Um, even in battle with the Philistines, God speaks these words, uh, chapter 13, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not endure, speaking to Saul. 
the Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul did not keep God's commands. And the reason he didn't keep God's commands is because he didn't have a heart for it. He says, I'm looking for a man that has a heart for it. And that man who has a heart for it is David. He was the one that was selected. Um, you know, when you're looking at resumes, when you're seeking to hire somebody, um, you look for somebody that matches the job description. I don't know about you, but when I, when I get a resume, when I'm trying to hire somebody, I, I love it when I've got a picture. It's like, send me a picture. It seems like a picture's worth a thousand words. I can tell so much from a picture. I can tell whether they're tall and short, whether they're disciplined or not, whether they uh, look like a good fit for the team and for the, for the ministry. Uh, there's so much you can tell by a picture. I like pictures. God says, our tendency, we all like pictures. That's why so much of our mobile apps today are just so exciting to us because they're just filled with pictures. We look at the outward. God says he looks at the heart. What can we tell from a picture? We can tell a lot. You know, I heard once that they um, elected a a man to be a preacher just because he had a good suntan. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But don't we require a lot from outward attractiveness? We want our preachers to be physically fit. We want them to be attractive. We want them to be seminary trained. We want them to know Greek. We want them to know Hebrew. We want them to do a lot of things that we can see and hear. We do. God doesn't require any of those things. God requires that those who minister for Him have a heart for Him. In all of my seminary training... In all of my examination, and I went through hours and hours of examination to be an ordained pastor. I can count on one hand, no, I can count on one finger, one person that asked me about my heart for God. Out of all the examination questions I heard, the one I remember is one small kind of chubby, short man, stood up in an examination room one day, and he said, David, I've got one question that I need to ask you, and I need your answer on before I'm ready to vote that God has called you to be a pastor. I said, yes, sir. And here, his question was, tell me about your love for God. He said, do you love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? Is God your passion? Is God your first love? I remember that question out of all the rest because that's the right question. That's the foremost question. That's the primary question. That's the most significant question because man looks at the outward. God looks at the heart. And we must evaluate our own heart. Um, You know, Do we ask for a heart for God? I've known a lot of uh, parents who uh, might be homeschooling their kids, might have their kids in a Christian school, and somewhere between 8th grade, ninth grade, somewhere in there, a lot of times they will switch schools. And I ask them, you know, why why are you switching from homeschooling, Christian school or whatever, to go to this other school? One family came to me and said to me once, says, well, we're switching to, from our homeschooling situation to a, a very private elite school. I said, why, why are you doing that? And they said, well, it's, you know, this, the, the final years of high school, and this uh, private school is, is big into sports and debate and music and drama. And I said, those are uh, certainly educational elements but I would consider them secondary educational elements as opposed to reading, writing, arithmetic, Bible study, different things would be more primary. They said, well, the reason we, we need those now is because that's what colleges look at for admissions and for scholarship. 
And that's not only what colleges look at, that's what the world looks at when they hire people, is these, these activities that shows them gifts and um, their aptness for certain jobs and careers. Man looks at the outward. We do look at those things. And it would be foolish for us to, to ignore that. But God's looking at our hearts. So how well do we clothe our children when we switch to secondary things? We want to clothe them with clothes. We want to have a nice car, a nice house, a nice career. But do we leave the primary for the secondary? How well are we at cultivating a heart for God? God's looking for men and women with a heart for God to use them and to deliver them. We're going to get... Like I said, we already looked at 2 Samuel chapter 4. God took David, a man with a heart for God, and delivered him from all his distress. Wow. I want to be delivered. God is delivering people with a heart for him. Yes, we're saved by grace, by grace alone. But our obedience matters. Our obedience matters. From a heart that's fully, 100%, completely God's matters. Because God rewards just such people with deliverance from distress. Well, God gives us one more story in 1 Samuel. Not only uh, the story of Saul, the story of anointing David, but when you go one more chapter, chapter 17, story all of us know, it's the story of David and Goliath. I won't take the time to, to read it all. It's such a popular story. Um, we have seen how God gives us the contrast. Honor yourself or a heart for God? A heart for God. We've seen the contrast. Think about your handsomeness, your beauty, your attractiveness outwardly or your heart for God? Your heart for God. And then in chapter 17, he shows us just this picture of should we pursue our health, our physical livelihood, our existence, or a heart for God. And again, it comes back to a heart for God. Well, you know the story. David's a young man. He's a youth. He's a little shepherd boy. Uh, His brothers are older than him, and they're off at war. They've signed up. And uh, they're in the Israeli, Israeli camp, and the Philistines come against the Israelites. And in the Israelite camp, there's no one as big as this man in the Philistine camp named Goliath. Goliath was huge. He was nine feet tall and ripped. I mean, a tall man is six feet. Goliath is three feet more, uh, an NBA Center, a lot of times you'll see a few that make it seven feet. Goliath is two feet beyond that. I mean, he just walks flat-footed and hits the net. Uh, he probably would have to duck through most of our homes or he hit light fixtures or even ceiling in an eight-foot ceiling because he's got a foot more than that. This is a big man. Uh, our average person would, would be down here. You, you see this huge ripped man uh, taunting the Israelites. He says, come fight me. Whoever fights me um, and beats me, then the Philistines will be your servant. But if he doesn't beat me, the Israelites have to be our servant. Well, the Israelites were fearing for their lives because who could fight this giant of a man who's so strong and powerful and win? Um, It's not likely that anyone of us could. And so they're thinking about their own physical existence, their livelihood. And then comes into the army camp this young shepherd boy named David. And he was only delivering, you know, sandwiches to his brothers. He's just coming to bring some food. And as he brings food, his heart begins to show through. Uh, Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Let me just read a few verses. Verse 26, Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills Goliath, this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine 
that should taunt the armies of the living God. Now, notice David's understanding is this Philistine, he's not anointed by God. He's, he's not standing there in obedience to God at all. He's taunting God himself. And that bothers David. And you see that in his heart. Uh, then he goes, it's reported that David is very bothered by Goliath and wants to do something about it. So they send him off to the king to uh, get his marching orders, if this is who God's raising up. And we read about it in verse 37. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go then, and may the Lord be with you. David wasn't really even planning to fight Goliath. He said, The Lord's going to do that. I'll go into battle, but the battle's the Lord's. God is going to deliver me from Goliath. David is all in for the Lord, doing what God wants and letting God work through him. Well, you know the story. Verse 41, then the Philistines, so this is Goliath, he came on and he approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and he saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So even the Philistine thought David was, you know, he's looking at the outward, not the inward. Looks at the outward of David and says, He's just a kid. It's like you come to me with sticks and stones. Do you not see how big and powerful I am? And I have a shield bearer in front of me. I've got this huge shield. I've got a huge sword. I've got a spear. Goliath is huge coming at David. No, no hint that David could possibly uh, crush him. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know. This is David's heart. I want all the earth to know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. David goes into battle and David wins. Why? Why does David win? Because the battle is the Lord's. Because the, the Lord delivers those whose heart is completely His why didn't God use the Israeli army? Anybody in it? I mean, anybody in it may say, I wish I was as big and strong and tough as Goliath. I'd take him on. But it, nobody was. Why didn't they use, God use Saul? He doesn't. Uh, God uses David. And the emphasis through this text is because David had a heart that was completely his. You know, what do we look for to get success? We look for health. If we don't have health, some people say we don't have anything. And we don't just look for health. We want physical fitness. We want to be the hunk. We want to be the hunkette. And we think those are the ones God blesses. God says, you look at the outward. And I need you to look at the inward. I thought of, I mean, you start meditating on this in so many People will come to your mind through the Scripture. But how about the widow in the New Testament who just gave a mite, the widow's mite? We remember her. Why? Because her heart was completely His, completely belonging to God. She gave all she had to God. How about the prostitute that came and anointed Jesus with oil and wept and dried the tears off of His feet? Why do we remember her? Because she gave all that she had. Her heart was completely his. Or you think about Job, who experienced so much stress 
But why do we remember him? Because he was the one God even praised for having a heart that was completely God's, completely his. God delivered the widow. He delivered the prostitute. He delivered Job. And you can go from example after example after example throughout the scripture of those whose hearts are completely his. We see God delivering them from all their distress, just as we see David uh, in this passage. So why do we think we'll have a prosperous marriage if we find us a hunkette or a hunk? a real babe or a real strong man? Why do we think we'll have a prosperous child if we teach them outwardly how to look and act and yet neglect their heart for God? We know marriages are built strong off of those who have a heart for God. Children are those who grow up strong, those who have a heart for God. And our other relationships and our other successes are because God delivers those whose hearts are completely His. Are we stressed out? What does God want us to do? Find ways to get ourselves out of our stress and build ourselves up. You know, if we can build ourselves up, it makes us feel really good. Is that what God wants? Does He want us even to build monuments to ourselves, like Saul? Or does He want a heart for God? Does he want us to become more handsome and more beautiful? Does he want us to really get the things around us that make us really attractive? Because people look and are attracted to outward appearances. Or does God want us to have a heart for him? Does he want us to be the strong Goliath, the hunk in fine health? Or does he want us to have a heart for God. You know, be honest. Evaluate in your distress and my distress. Wouldn't we be pleased if God just lifted us up a little bit? Exalted us? Maybe even took some of the good things we're doing and made a monument to our name? Do we sometimes pray for that kind of deliverance? Wouldn't we be encouraged if we were more fit and attractive? And do we sometimes plead with God for that? How many of us really, really pray that God would grant us through our stress a heart for Him? That God would make us fully, completely, 100% all in for Him? Look at Second Samuel 16, excuse me, Second chronicles 16 verse 9 another popular verse you probably know second chronicles 16 9 for the eyes of the lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may support strongly those whose heart is completely his the eyes of the lord constantly looking back and forth Throughout the whole earth. What's God looking for? He's looking for those whose heart is completely His. Because those are the ones He chooses to deliver out of their stress and bless. It, it kind of gives me the picture, the old picture of the damsel in distress and the knight on shining armor. So you have this knight with his armor. He's got this javelin in his hands and he's riding his horse and he comes into town and he sees this beautiful lady um, uh, being manhandled. And he comes with his javelin and he attacks uh, the one holding the lady. And then he grabs up the lady and puts her behind him on the horse. And they ride off into the sunset. He's delivered her. God wants to come and deliver. God is looking to rescue us in our distress. Doesn't matter whether we're male or female. God said, I want to come and deliver. But God's attraction is not the outward. He also is delivering those who are attractive to Him. And we're attractive to Him because our hearts are completely His. Do we have hearts 
that God would want to rescue? Do we pray uh, for hearts that are completely His? Do we try to cultivate through our Bible reading and prayer and worship a heart that is completely His? Do we realize we can't get a heart that's completely His? Only Christ can give it to us. Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, part of the new covenant is I want to give you a new heart that enables you to keep my commands. Have you asked Christ for that heart? Say, oh, Christ, I need a heart. I need this heart in me ripped out, and I need a transplant. I need a heart that is completely yours. God comes for those that are His redeemed, those who have been given this heart by Christ that is completely transformed to obey God's commands. And He delivers those with such a heart from all distress. Praise be to God for deliverance through Christ. You know, when I look at you, you look at me. I can't tell if you have that heart or not. It reminds me of Judas Iscariot who betrayed Christ, or John, who loved Christ and was known for his love for Christ. If I was looking at John and Judas, I wouldn't be able to tell whether they have a heart for God or not, but God can. God saw the betrayal in Judas in his heart. God saw the love of John. Are we a John or are we a Judas? God looks to and fro throughout the whole earth to support those whose heart is completely His and to deliver us from all our stress. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You realizing this is a time to repent. We sometimes get so stressed out that we just focus on exalting ourselves, somehow rising above the fray. And what we need to do is humbly come before you and turn from our self-centered, want-to-do-it-our-way ways. Forgive us, Lord, for not having a heart completely yours. We come now to Christ. Christ, we ask of you, we beg of you, please transform us. Take this heart of wickedness from us and give us a heart that's 100% passionate and, and full of desire to obey your every command. Lord, we want to be those who are delivered from distress. But first and foremost, we want to be those who are completely yours, living for you, obeying every word out of the mouth of our God, humbly Subdue us, Lord, to your words, to your commands, that we might follow you fully, that we might be all in for Christ, so that this stressful pandemic we're under is not wasted, but we come forth shining as those who are fully and completely yours. For your praise and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.